This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Hello and welcome to the Llama Podcast. I'm Peter Bowes and Llama, Live Long and Master Aging, is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Today my guest is Dr. Stephen Eisenberg, a medical oncologist who practices at various locations in Southern California. He's also a writer and lectures on a wide array of cancer topics, including breast, colon, lung and prostate cancer, which are his special interests. But Dr. Stephen, as he's known to his patients, is probably probably best known for his use of music in his medical practice. He is the cancer doctor who sings to his patients. Stephen, welcome to the Lama Podcast. Thank you for having me, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. The singing doctor, I uh, bet they didn't teach you that in medical school. No, not at all. But um, I, I do remember my mentor, the first day of medical school, pointing to the door and saying, all of you who come through this door who do not believe in empathy, walk through those doors and never return. And it was just, uh, it, it hit my core because to me, the universal language of, of music is a way of bringing empathy to patients. Did you as a student have to be told about empathy? Doesn't it come naturally if that is the profession, your chosen profession? Yes, I mean, it, empathy it's hard to teach. Uh, it ha- it's sort of in- ingrained in you when you when you're coming up. But I do believe that there are, you know, they're actually using virtual reality now in medicine to actually be able, <laughs> believe it or not, to teach empathy to medical students because you know now we're on our phones so much. It's time to look up and be with people and listen to them, and all of that's part of empathy, and that's the underlying core message of these songs. It's human connection. So where did you train as a doctor? In Philadelphia, and then did my hematology oncology at Georgetown University in D.C. Why did you want to become a doctor? Was, there some, was it always in you, do you think, that you had this empathy and that you wanted to help people? It's a very interesting story. I actually died when I was 13. I was hit by a car riding a bike, did a triple lindy in the, in the air, and cr- broke too many bones to count, and was rushed to the intensive care unit where my brain swelling was so uh, much the first night that I died. There was a flat line, the whole thing, near-death experience, and... Uh, Luckily, they did bring me back. I have, I have a recollection of this, of seeing a light and coming back and all of this. But uh, when I came to, uh, I couldn't speak. My brain was still swelling, and, and, and there, there was so much uh, going on that I had what's known as expressive aphasia. I knew what I wanted to say, but I couldn't express the words. The, my brain and, and, and it could not make the words. So... The only thing that I could connect through was music, believe it or not. I could write down what I wanted, but I could sing a few lines of Michael Jackson and Prince, which was the strangest feeling. But um, it was 1983, so of course it was Michael Jackson and it was Prince. It was Thriller and it was Purple Rain. 
And <laughs> these were the th ways that I started to make words again. And it all came through through music first. And then eventually I was able to, to make uh, regular words. And I remember thinking when I came fully back and my father told me everything that had happened, that I flatlined and all of this, that I was given a second chance. And I need to do something where I can give others a second chance. And then it became on medical school, and then it became oncology. I come from a line of doctors, my father and his two brothers. It was, it was natural. But I did have this, this uh, moment where I wanted to say, how can I combine my love for human physiology and, and life, right, biology, with that other undescribable human nature, to use another Michael Jackson title. But the, you know, what makes us human? What connects us? This was so important to me, and I wanted to incorporate it in whatever I ended up doing. I just want to take you back. You mentioned that near-death experience, or maybe it was, uh, at the time, it seemed like total death, perhaps, to the people around you. Right. Again, and with the perspective of being a doctor now in the medical profession, can you describe what happened to you, and, and can you explain it? Oh, my Lord. It, I was only 13 at the time. I was, dry, I was riding my bike to go play tennis with John Brodsky. I remember it like yesterday. I was wearing my Philadelphia 76ers ball cap, and I had my huffy bicycle carrying my tennis racket around my, around the, my shoulder. And I was turning the corner, and the car hit me. And I don't remember being hit by the car. I just remember driving down the road and then waking up and seeing my mom and dad over my left shoulder, looking very worried. And then the next thing I remember is being in the ambulance and them cutting the sweatpants so they could get to the bone that was popping through the skin. And then I remember being sewn up. My whole face was torn apart. The left part of my face was hanging off. My pinky was hanging off. And then uh, I remember being shuttled off to the ICU and settling down. But the next thing I remember is just a light. And uh, there was just a very bright light. And then the next moment were the nurses looking over me and saying, you're going to be OK now. You're going to be OK now. But I guess during that whole, when I saw the light and all that was when it all had gone down. The flatlining and the stopping of the breathing and then it was a very slow recovery from then. But all I remember was a bright light. That's all I can tell you. There was no tunnel. It was just everything was light, almost like, you know, like you close your eyes really hard. Or you took your hands and you push in your eyes and you see just this bright light. It was just, it was indescribable. But it was no fear. It was not a sense of fear, just light, a warm light. And that was it. And maybe it was my brain dying and or the swelling, or what, who knows what it was, but I say it was um, that universal creative spirit, and that's, for me, that's just why I believed creativity was what <laughs> brought me back. It had to be a, some sort of creative expression, had to be put in my medicine, if you will, or whatever it was I was going to do. I love music, I love comedy, I love medicine, so I wanted to bring all of this in and be... Uh, at the time, it was only, let's do something that, that, second chances, you know, don't have regrets. 
go for it. You know, very cliche. Mm. <laughs> but I remember at 13 thinking, don't let fear stop you. That was the main theme of my life from that point on. And as a doctor in future years, have you had the experience of having to talk to patients about them having similar experiences to your own? Yes, I mean, th th that is the one of the main reasons I chose oncology, because I don't think the, uh, I think the, the three scariest words any person could hear are, you have cancer. And I was, and I was scared, right? I was very scared when I couldn't speak and, and, I, and all of this, and when I thought I was going to die. But um, I got that second chance, and I see these patients every day, and I love my patients. I treat them as family. I don't believe in the, you must keep the wall between you and the patient. And, you know, I, I say that's a bunch of malarkey, Peter, because I think that's what leads to burnout in doctors, you know, because when you feel the human connection and your patients inspire you, then you become a better doctor and you enjoy what you do more. It becomes more than just electronic medical records. Well, on this podcast, we obviously focus on longevity and living a long, hopefully healthy life. And as we know, there is much we can do to optimise our chances of achieving a long, healthy life. But that said... and, and you, disease and cancer, my you, friend. You, Heart disease is number one. Cancer is going to overtake it. Did you know this? Yeah, but you just used a phrase, you've got cancer. And for all those of us who pay attention to our health and the things that we can do to optimize that health span, there are things I think that the vast majority of, of us still fear. And one of those things is hearing from a doctor that phrase that you have got cancer when we feel as if we've done everything possible in our lives to be as healthy as possible. Yes. How do we deal with that? Well, I'm going to give you the secrets to reduce your risk by 50% right now. First thing is, obviously, the fear is always going to be there. You have to let go of the fear and start getting into action, right? Actions are much more important than words. We're all afraid of what those words could mean and hearing those words. But we have to get into action. We have to get off the couch. We have to power down the phones and go outside and stop. The first thing is obviously to quit smoking, which is easier said than done. But I believe with, with mindfulness meditation, you can do it. With mindfulness meditation and, of course, using all of the other FDA-approved um, programs and you know gums and chantix and whatever it is, but the key is mindfulness meditation. That is the way to quit smoking because you have to start with your mind. Addiction to cigarettes starts in the mind, and then, of course, it becomes this psychological dependence and then this physical dependence. But if you can smoke one less cigarette than you did yesterday, that's the beginning. You have to start slow. It's, it's people who say, cold turkey, I'll never smoke another cigarette again. These are the ones who fail more often than not. Tiny shifts. So you have to start writing down how many cigarettes you smoke today. And then one less, and then another less, and then an you have to see, you have to assess where you are. How many servings of fruits and vegetables do you eat every day? Now it's, you must have 10 servings a day. 800 grams is the new recommendation, which is like three stalks of broccoli, four stalks of of cauliflower, an apple, an orange, a kiwi fruit, 
another banana, another serving of broccoli. It's much more than you think it is, my friends. So this is another thing you must do. Vegetables greater than fruits, but you have to have fruits and vegetables 10 servings a day. And you must get rid of the red meat. I hate to say that, but people say cut down on red meat. No, I say get rid of it completely because if you try to cut down, I say you're only going to give yourself that little in and then it's going to be more and then it's, you're going to be ordering a burger and then all of a sudden it's another burger. So no red meat is another one of my rules. Does that mean you're a vegetarian or a vegan? I'm uh, well. I I eat some fish. So, so you're I guess a pescatarian. A pescatarian, I guess. You'd Which call is actually it. the same as I am. Yes. I, I'm a pescatarian too. Yes, the Mediterranean diet has shown over and over again that this is the number one diet for anti-inflammation, anti-cancer, anti-heart disease. The Mediterranean diet, olive oil. You have to bring in these diets. So beautiful, colorful. Eat the rainbow. So we've gone through a few of the things you can do to slash your risk by 50%, Peter. And There's more as well. Yeah, there is. And you, you talked obviously about cigarettes, and that is probably the best known causer of cancer. But did you know that alcohol is, a, is a, one of the main causes of head and neck cancer? Yeah. I didn't know that. Head and neck cancer, alcohol, mouth cancer. And I see it when it's stage four, when you have a huge lump in your neck the size of a softball... And I've even seen it, obviously, where it spreads to the lungs. And, 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 you know, people think alcohol, well, no, it's not that bad for you. Well, sorry, my friends. It is. It's a number, a very high risk of mouth, oral, head and neck cancer. Now, are you talking about excessive consumption of alcohol or is a glass of wine every now and then okay? I'm okay with a glass of wine every now and then, uh, but when, you know, everyone says in moderation. And again, it gets back to the cigarette. If you let yourself smoke one, then it becomes two, four, eight. If you let yourself have a sip, right? So you have to be very strict with yourself. You have to you have to keep a notebook. How much did I actually drink? When was it? Because. You know, then it becomes a casual glass, two, three, every single night, and all of a sudden you're at higher risk of, of breast cancer if you're, a, if you're a woman, excessive alcohol use, uh, head and neck cancer, pancreatic cancer. All of these things, alcohol is a very, very underestimated cancer risk, but it's true, as is obesity, my friend. So, again, that gets back to the healthy diet, the healthy fats, as my friend Mark Hyman states, it's all about the healthy fats, avocado, macadamia nuts, eat more nuts and less fries. You know, it's these tiny replacements you can make. More nuts, less fries, healthy nuts, walnuts, almonds. And what about those cancers? And I'm thinking of, let's say, pancreatic cancer, the the really tough, difficult cancers. Very awful. Is there anything we can do? I mean, apart from all the sensible changes that you talk about in terms of the obvious not smoking and having a a good balanced diet. Exercise. You have to move your body. We're sedentary. We're obese, especially in the the U.S. We are one of the, the most obese nations in the world. We are just sedentary. Sitting is the new smoking. 
And we, we sit in our cubicles and we eat our fries and then we go home and smoke. And when you add those together, you are increasing your risk of cancer exponentially. Smoking plus sitting <laughs> and add a sprinkle of fries, that is the recipe for disaster. So every 15 minutes, you must get up, you must move, you must do office yoga, you must walk and sprint down your, <laughs> your hallway, go and walk up a few flight of the stairs in your building. You have to do this every 15 minutes because sitting is the worst thing you can do for yourself. And yes, sedentary lifestyle is a risk factor for cancer, not just heart disease, but cancer. So there's clearly a, a lot we can do. However, it is still possible to get cancer. And you've, yes, you've yes, you could pretty the, much done everything you can think of. I've had Tibetan monks come in from the Vista, California, at the uh, temple come in. And all they do is meditate and eat broccoli all day. And they had lung cancer. And I couldn't describe it. They did nothing wrong. They never smoked in their life. So, yes, there are some genetic mutations that we're getting much better at discovering, genomic analyses. There's companies like Caris and Foundation One where you can test your entire genome and you can test the tumor for genetic alterations. And certain, it's a combination of, ge of genetics and environment. So we have to do our part and you can actually decrease your risk through epigenetics. Maybe you have a, maybe you have a risk for cancer but you can decrease that risk by the anti-inflammatory diet that we've discussed, a very good exercise program. There's things you can do that will help keep those genes in the off position. And that's what we're talking about today. And that is obviously the way of longevity. Now, there are obviously, let's say we do have cancer. There are so many treatments now that didn't exist just a, a few short years ago. Cancer isn't always going to be the death sentence that, that it once was. And it is possible to, to live with cancer. It's possible to live without cancer, to survive cancer. For sure, for sure. Our when, treatments have gotten so much better. But you must remember, this is what people must remember. Cancer is 200 distinct diseases. It's not just... I have cancer. It's, I have lung cancer. I have breast cancer. I have prostate cancer. I have cholangiocarcinoma. I have pancreatic cancer. Every cancer is different, and it should be treated as, a, as its own distinct entity. And that person who has the cancer is so unique. Their milieu, their makeup, right? They're the host, right, of this. You have to make your body inhospitable to cancer. So... Um, it's 200 diseases and then an, an innumerable number of human beings who are the host of that. So the, the, the combinations are endless. And I'm curious as, as a doctor, I mean, you are the person who has to break that terrible news sometimes to someone. How do you help them cope with, and let's say it is a, an otherwise healthy person who's done just about everything right as far as they can in terms of not smoking and, and their diet and their exercise, and they still get cancer. How do you help someone live, continue to live their life, to, tr to take the treatment for the cancer, and presumably to fight the anger and maybe yes. the resentment that they yes. feel? Yes, oh my Lord. Louise Hay talks about cancer being a physical manifestation of 
unexpressed anger and resentment that is held inside. Uh, this, this is a controversial theory, of course, because one of the top psycho-oncologists and Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City, Dr. Jimmy Holland, states that the tyranny of a positive attitude, and, and I agree with her that you cannot blame yourself for the cancer. The first thing I do with a patient is say, give up the blame. You did not cause this cancer. Now look, if they're smoking, I'm not going to say, you caused this cancer. I would never do that. I never blame them. But I say, give up the blame. You didn't, you know, you did what you did, whether you smoked or not. But we're using the example of a, of a person who never smoked, drinks a little bit on the weekend, exercises. I see these patients all the time, and they're blaming themselves. Oh, if only I didn't eat that cheeseburger in 1985 at McDonald's. No. You must give that up because that is not what's going on. You did not cause your cancer. You are not your cancer. That's the first thing I let them try on. You know, not everything I say to a patient is going to be connect, uh, is not going to connect with them at their soul level. But I try, and I try to get into their world, to get into their shoes. So I say, try this on. You did not cause your cancer. You are not your cancer. You are a unique human being going through this wonderful journey of life. You happen to have this diagnosis. We're going to deal with it. If they're curable, we're going to say we're going to do everything in our power to cure you. And then this will be a turning point of your life, and you'll go on the rest of your life. If you have stage 4 cancer, you must give up that blame too. You did not cause this. You're going to live as much of a wonderful life as you can with the cancer. We're going to focus on quality of life and quantity of life, but give up the blame first. The blame game doesn't help anyone. You have to say, is this helpful or is this not helpful? Self-blame, not helpful. First thing to give up along the journey. And how do you help someone in that extremely difficult situation where they know that the seriousness of the cancer is such that they will not grow to be very old and that their days are limited? For those of us who, who love life and relish the idea of moving on and getting older and staying healthy, how do you help someone deal with that situation? A dear friend of mine, um, Dr. Janet Solid, is a wonderful uh, human being, doctor, pediatrician, who was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. She's young. She's vibrant. She climbs mountains. She um, <laughs> is in races. She's my inspiration. I had a very beautiful discussion with her recently, and I asked her the same question, and she said, you just have to keep living. You take every moment, you try to be in the present moment. I hate the idea that she has this expiration date thrown on her. I try to bring people back to the present moment that right now, right now, you're okay. We're in this room together. We're looking at each other eye to eye. We're holding hands maybe. We're Googling something together. We're Googling a Seinfeld video and we're laughing together. We're Googling a clinical trial and we're researching it together. But what do I tell them? There are no words, to be honest. 
I tell them to try to be present as much as you can. I tell them I want you to do some chair yoga, some chair meditation, you know, some easy, easy yoga postures so they can learn how to be in the present moment, in their body, in their mind, and to try and be here now rather than think about the future of I may not be here. There's just, there's not a very good answer here, Peter. I, I work with them, I work with them in the room and work with their mindfulness and just to embrace every moment. And I try to encourage them to say, look, none of us really know how long we have. And it's not, it's very cliche and it's very, it's not the answer, but it's true. None of us know. I mean, we could all be in an accident, a huge asteroid could hit the earth, but... When we have cancer, yes, we're looking at five, six months, a year. Will I be here in five years? Will I be here in ten years? And that's the awful thing. That's the awful thing that if you if they're asking me, will I be here in five years? And I say, well, it's a flip of a coin. I don't think that's very helpful. I just don't. I mean, some patients, if they beg me, if they not if they beg me, but if they push me towards, can you go over the statistics with me? I'll do that, and I'll say the chances of you being here in five years are, you know, 50% or lower. If it's pancreatic cancer that, you know, has, has spread, it's even lower than that. But I encourage them to believe that they are not a statistic, that there's always that other right half of the bell curve, that there's always new treatments coming down the pike, that there's always hope, and that... If you can just live today pain-free, if you can live pain-free until your granddaughter's birthday in two months, let's, let's look at little micro, micro goals and tiny habits for the day. And those can build upon each other and they can create a wonderful week and a wonderful month. And we just go from there. And that's, it's, it's all about these little tiny steps that we can take each time we're together to bring them into the present and not, you know, not worrying about what's going to happen in six months from now. So let's talk about you and singing to the patients. How <laughs> yes. did all of that happen? Oh, my Lord. It's a funny story. I've always had a guitar at my side. I've always been a songwriter. I, was a, I had a, a band with my friend Mark Schwab when we were, <laughs> when we were in uh, sixth grade. We, our band was called um, The Slew. <laughs> we were The Slew, and we would write songs about the cute girls in our class. And we were like this sort of this punk band and we wrote these funny lyrics and anyway after the accident and all this and all this I kept writing lyrics and kept writing songs and when I was going through a very stressful time as a newly stamped oncologist ka-ching I was I just joined this mega practice in San Diego Southern California moved across the country with a with a wife and a one-year-old baby the practice split up went through this horrendous divorce and I didn't know where I was going to end up and I just up, upended my entire family and I was so stressed and I had to be this perfect oncologist. I stressed myself ill. 
I got colitis, inflammation of the colon. I got prostatitis and colitis, and I, all these stress-related symptoms, migraines, all because I could not honor that highest part of myself. I was letting the stress bring me down. I couldn't eat. I was losing weight. I couldn't pee right. I was, I was having all of these symptoms. Caused by stress. Caused by the stress of this breakup and having to be this perfect oncologist and navigate this divorce and do everything perfectly. And I lost track of who I really, why I wanted to be an oncologist. The music, the laughter, the love that we've been talking about was being swept under as I had to see more patients and do it right and, and never make a mistake. And of course, you never want to make a mistake as a doctor, but we're all human. And, and of course, those frailties, if you want to see them like that, apply to other walks of life, don't they? People yes. in stressful situations. Yes, stress, stress, stress. So I entered a story writing contest that my favorite musical artist, who happens to live here in L.A., in Santa Monica, his name's Peter Himmelman. He had a story writing contest around the same time, and it was, How Has Peter's Music Influenced You? And it got me thinking, wow, you know, when I was that intern and that resident, and I still had my, my high hopes for medicine, I listened to this song all the time in the middle of the night when I was called to the emergency room called Mission of My Soul. And I wrote a story called Mission of My Medicine and how this song would take me up and make me believe that I could be this doctor that could bring in music and laughter to a cancer patients and bring them love and light and joy. And I wrote the story because I, had, I was in a low place in my life. And wouldn't you know it, I won the contest. And you know what the prize was, Peter? What was it? Peter Himmelman, my friend Peter, um, writes a song for you based on your life. So he took what I had written, wrote a song, and sent it to me. It was my prize, and I started hearing the song, and then I started realizing, wow, this music is changing me. It's, it's getting to my core, and the stress, I started to take care of myself better. I started to let go of the stress. I started to let go of the of the perfectionistic attitude, and I could just be the best doctor I could be. I could express myself. I could bring in my creativity. I didn't have to be the oncologist that everyone thought I had to be, this perfectly buttoned up. I could be the guitarist. I could be the oncologist, the guitarist. I could be the oncologist who brings in a guitar to the chemo room and starts to strum a Beatles tune. But then I took it further. I said, well, what was it that really got to me? It was that my own life was sung back to me. My own life in a song, in a two-and-a-half-minute ditty. So I said, no, that's got to be it. It's got to be writing original songs, original lyrics, original music with patience. I don't just write the songs. It's a co-creation. The patient tells me what moves them, what touches them, what inspires them, what is their heart, what makes them laugh, what makes them cry, what makes them tick. This becomes the lyrics, and it's this shared experience. And that, my friend, is what I decided to do when my own song helped me let go of the stress. And I've never had a bout of colitis or anything like this ever again. Once I heard the song and once I started honoring the self-expression and the love that I wanted to bring, 
then it was, I have to give back. So you decided to do this and to do this for your patients. Before we hear the response and how your patients reacted to you doing this and serenading them in the ward, let's just have a listen to you singing a song to one of your patients. You, you're a diamond jewel. I'm not cool. I'm just a doc. But you, you're so rare. You really care and lead with love. Yeah, you, you're a diamond jewel. You're so cool. You make me smile. Cause you, you're so rare. Cause you really care. And it's all from love. You. Hey! <laughs> So that was a song that you wrote, and you write each individual song targeted at the personality and the experiences of the patient. Yes, so we'll sit down, and uh, we'll start it at the last few minutes of our visit, but then we'll pick it up on the weekend. I'll call them, we'll do another 20 minutes on the phone, 20, 30 minutes, and I'm jotting frantically. So I'm asked, there's a very, very specific songwriting session where we get into their life. What were you like as a child? How did you meet your husband or wife? What are your favorite things to do when you're not in the, in the chemo clinic? What do you do to laugh? What's your favorite show? What do you do? What's your favorite book? You know, we'll, and we'll get deep. We will get very deep and dirty. And it's a, it's a, it's a lot of soul food. And... You clearly have had a very positive response to this. And you are still quite a unique character in terms of doing this. But do you think as a, I don't know whether I can call it a treatment as such, you're not really, or are you, treating the cancer, but it's a, a therapeutic benefit to the patient to help them through their situation. Is it indeed spreading uh, your colleagues looking at this and doing similar things? There's another doctor who's, who brought his guitar into the chemo ward. I've seen people are sending me videos of guitar playing, of just, you know, music therapy, oncologists uh, bringing their guitar and just playing instrument, beautiful instrumentals in the chemo suite. And people are, are commenting that they are uh, letting go of the fact that they're in a chemo suite for a few, even for a few minutes. I close my eyes, I smell the coffee, and I feel like I'm in a coffee house in 1965, and I'm in New York City, and they're, they're coming back to these beautiful memories, and, and whether it's a lovely distraction or whether we're treating depression and anxiety, which I believe we are. Do you believe there is science behind this? I believe there is. There's a there's a lots of studies that are coming out very recently that show that music changes the dopaminergic receptors in the brain. But more than that, in that depression and anxiety, which every cancer patient most likely has, and if you don't, I'm worried about you. But most patients, when they hear you have cancer, you go into a 
post-traumatic state. It's, it's a post-traumatic stress disorder. It, all you see is the gums flapping, the lips flap. You can't even hear what the doctor's saying anymore because you're thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to die. Oh, my God, I'm going to die. Oh, my God, am I going to be here for my kid's graduation? Oh my. It's post-traumatic stress, and it causes anxiety and depression. Well, guess what they're finding, which is horrible, but patients who are severely depressed and anxious don't do as well with the treatments. That's ridiculous. I mean, that's, hor that's horrible because every patient with cancer is, is, is anxious and depressed. Now you're telling us that th they don't do as well? Well, how can we impact that? We can give them drugs, of course. But I say, even above that, we treat their mind, their body, and their soul. And even if these songs can ratchet up their happiness quotient and decrease their, their depression by 5%, well, that's great. I'll and, take it. And is the traditionally conservative medical establishment, if you want to call it that, are of they course, beginning to accept it's, this it's kind of thing? therapy. It's get them into psychological counseling and give them a pill. Or, you know, uh, psychiatry is very uh, geared towards medications. Uh, there's a lot of wonderful psychiatrists doing uh, talk therapy as well. But um, this, is, this is absolutely <laughs> unconventional. I believe I've seen depression and anxiety improve greatly. Everything's connected. On an ontologic level, we're all just organisms and we're just beings and we're just, <laughs> like I said, that light. When I died, uh, you know, there's a lot of visionaries out there that just say that everything is, you know, we're more empty space than we are solid things. And so I think everything is connected on a mind, body, soul level. And if these songs can nourish this, that, that, mind and soul level, and we give you the best of science for your body, and you're doing your part with all the lifestyle things we've talked about, then it's a trifecta. And that's the trifecta that we all want. You want to live a long life, you want to live a happy life, and you want to live a soulful life. And I love, your, I love what you're creating here at Lama. Do you think about your own longevity? Do you imagine yourself as as 90 years old and, and doing something special. And, and what are you doing now to try to achieve that? I love it. Uh, yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. I schedule in my um, planner skiing at 75. That's where I put my workout, skiing at 75. So if you want to work out, what's your future possibility? So schedule it as hiking the Alps at 80, because <laughs> that's what you want to do, right? And that's why you want to get your butt into the gym now. So what I do is, A, sleep. You have to sleep. That's the most important thing you can do for your health. And don't forget about it. People say, I'll sleep a lot when I'm dead. Well, you will die if you don't sleep. You have to sleep. That's the first thing. So get eight hours, at least eight hours. And don't don't shortchange yourself for six hours. So sleep. What How do you sleep better? Meditation. What about people who, as they get older, say they can't sleep for eight hours? They wake up in the middle of the night and they just roll over and they struggle and, Here's and just what have you to do. get up. Here's what you do. If that's you, and that's many thousands and millions of people around the world, when you wake up, you take your pillow, you prop up your lower back, and you sit up in your bed, and you start your meditation. And I'm going to teach it to you right now. You think in your mind, so hum. 
so hum. When you inhale, you think the, the sound so. When you exhale, you think the word hum. So hum, so hum. Deepak Chopra says that's the easiest and best mantra to begin with. It's mantra meditation. So you think, you sit up, you start doing in your mind, so hum. Inhale, so, exhale, hum. You do that, you start to think, what am I doing? This is crazy. I heard this on Lama podcast. I don't want to do this. You just say, okay, thank you for sharing, mind. Thank you for sharing. I now release you and go back to so hum, so hum. In a few minutes of doing this, you'll start to feel tired again, then lay down and gently fall back asleep. It's when you get up and start worrying. Oh, my God, it's three, it's four. I'll never fall back asleep. Oh, my God, this is horrible. And you look at your clock. Never look at your clock when you wake up. Just prop up your back, sit up, keep your head up straight. Don't rest your head on the wall, but support your lower back. Sit up in your bed and start your mantra meditation. When you feel tired, go back to bed. I don't care if you have to do this two, three, four times a night. That's what I want you to do when you wake up in the middle of the night. And if you still do that and you still stay in bed for eight hours, but you're still waking up and doing these mindfulness, this mantra meditation, you will get the benefits of having had that full sleep. Trust me on this. You're training your mind to relax. You're training your mind to focus and allow you to drift back to sleep. That's the first thing. The second thing is... Sprinting, And what I don't mean going out and running the 50-yard dash. I mean on your bike, on your stationary bike, or on your elliptical machine, I just want you to do 20 seconds a little bit harder than you normally do. And again, we talk about tiny shifts. You know, when I say sprint, I mean as, hard, you know, as, as much as you can do. For 20 seconds, I want you to amp it up as much as you can. That's called high-intensity interval training. Just for, even if it's 15, 10 seconds, just for, the, just for 15 to 20 seconds, I want you to just rev it up as much as you're comfortable with. And you all know that it's different for everyone. And then let your heart rate come back down. Wait a few minutes, wait a few minutes, wait a few minutes. And then I want you to do it again. Three of those. If you could just do three of those 20-second, let's call them sprints. But what it is, is whatever machine you're on, if if you're walking, walk a little bit faster for 20 seconds, then go back to your normal pace. It's just a general thing called a sprint. Whatever you're doing, sprint a little bit, meaning up the intensity for 20 seconds, then let your heart rate recover. Just do three of them. Just do three of them a couple times a week. It's really interesting you should say that because that is exactly what I do at least once a week. And this is in a a gym setting and you don't have to be quite as sophisticated or technologically advanced as this to achieve what you're talking about. But we were heart rate monitors. We can see our heart rate on a big board in the gym. And off we all go for the 20 seconds or 30 seconds at our own pace, but as hard as we possibly can. You see the heart rate rise to 85% of your maximum or whatever it is, you get to that point and then you come down, you come down to 75% and then you do it all over again for for two or three times. Again, at your own pace, you're fighting. The only person you're fighting is yourself or at least what you feel comfortable doing. But you really do push yourself to exhaustion, but you feel great afterwards. Yes. Now, 
if you're new at working out, your exhaustion is going to be different. And, and of course, the consult with your, your doctor before you do any of this. But when, when, we, when we're talking about sprinting, we're, we're not saying you have to go out and run as fast as you can. It's whatever you're doing, increase the intensity for 10, 15 seconds. Max 20 seconds, okay? And then that becomes your sprint. And that's that little intensity. It's, it's, it's just a different way of going rather than just slugging along for 30 minutes on the machine, the gerbil on the wheel, right? It's, it's mixing it up a little with this higher intensity. Let's just, you know, because there's people out there who haven't worked out, who have been sedentary. For them, it's 10 seconds. It's, you know, you're on there, maybe you're on there for five minutes. And out of the five minutes, you've done 20 seconds, a little bit harder, where you just push yourself. And that's been shown in the research to increase cardiovascular health, to increase longevity. It's just, I just read three studies this week that Mediterranean diet and interval training is the way to go for longevity. Bit of boom, bit of bang. Stop smoking, Mediterranean diet, and do some interval training. Simplify, simplify, tiny habits, a little more Mediterranean than, less, than yesterday, a little bit more interval training than yesterday. It doesn't have to be perfect. Give up perfection. That's what brought me down when I had to be the perfect doctor. I had to be the perfect oncologist. That's when the stress came in. Do what you can do and then let go of the rest. It's interesting that we're hearing this message about exercise and Mediterranean diet Repeatedly, as you say, uh, several reports coming out in the space of a week, all essentially with the same message. And uh, you also made a good point on this podcast. We do not give out medical advice. We, we share ideas, we discuss ideas, but we always encourage people to, if they're thinking about a new diet or exercise regime, you should see your own doctor first. Yes. Now, here's what I want to drive home, Peter. If we all did what we know, we'd be walking around with washboard abs, living to 100, skiing at 80. It's not just knowing the information. It's what is it going to take for you who are listening right now to actually use the information and to actually get off your tukis right now, wherever you are listening to this, and clear out your closet, your cupboard, and only bring in these Mediterranean diet foods. What is it going to take for you to get off your couch, power down your phone, and go for a walk, and do these 10-second little sprints, let's call it, you know, where you walk faster, and you just increase the intensity. You look like Billy Crystal and Harry Met Sally, and you just you get those arms flailing, and you just do that power walk. Five, 10 seconds. What is it going to take? That's what I want you to ask yourself, because... It's not the knowing what to do. It's doing it. And what I say is take a minute, take a break. When you're about to eat that donut, take a minute and say, is this helpful? Ask yourself, is this helpful? And if the answer is no, just take a moment to breathe. Close your eyes. And again, it goes back to that mindfulness. Be mindful for one second before you chomp on the donut and say, is this helpful? towards, I'm skiing at 80. If the answer is no, take a break, just five seconds, and then scoop out some avocado instead. Right? So it's, it's these little moment-by-moment choices. So it's not in the knowing. We all know Mediterranean diet. We all know 
interval training is good for you. Or at least now you do if you didn't before. Well, but, it's it's getting beyond the knowing and, as you say, yes. taking action, which yes. sounds easy. But for mm-hmm. so many people, when we can use excuses, I'm busy, I've got to take the children to school, I've got to do this, I've got to clean out the kitchen, I've got to take the dog for a walk and, oh, the mindfulness or the exercise can start tomorrow or it can start next weekend or it can start next week. And so many people are in that mindset. Yeah, yeah. And that's where... Those tiny habits come in. Start slow and build upon a foundation and use this goal in the future as your motivation. Playing ball with my great-grandson at age 85. That's why you do it. That's why you get off the couch right now. It's not, I've got to be perfect. I've got to do everything right now. It's New Year's or whatever it is. Or It's alive and playing with my grandchild at 80. And when you start looking at these future possibilities, bring them closer and closer to the now. So you take that moment and go, wait, is this helpful for skiing at 80? That's, you, that's why you're doing everything when it comes to your health and wellness. That become, But you have to find out what it is. It's not, if it's not skiing at 80, then it's swimming in the ocean with my wife together at 90. You know, whatever it is for you. Stephen, this has been fascinating. Thank you very much. You're just about out of time. How can people follow you? DrStephen.com D-R-S-T-E-V-E-N.com It's very easy. Stephen at DrStephen.com I always write back. I love you guys and thank you so much for having me, Peter. Thank you so much. You're also on Facebook and, and Twitter as well. Yes, yes. Twitter is at Dr. S. Eisenberg. Dr. Stephen Eisenberg, thank you so much for joining us. And that is it for this episode of the Llama Podcast. You can contact us through our website at llamapodcast.com and you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Llama Podcast. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.